Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Awesome. All right. Well, I do want to do a, uh, a part two. We are in this theme of messages called the Red Letters, which is the teachings of Jesus. And so I believe more than ever, the Lord is emphasizing the scriptures to the church. And he is emphasizing the, the truth that we must adjust to the scriptures The scriptures will not adjust to us. It will not adjust to culture. Culture bends and changes, but we will not bend and change with culture. Scripture stays the same no matter what is happening in in the world. And uh, Pastor Bill always said that the main reason that he hears from people as the main reason why they don't read the Bible daily is because they say, I don't remember what I read, so I'm just not going to read it. And... To that, he responds, well, I don't remember what I had for lunch last Thursday, but it still nourished me. It still sustained me. It still did me good. I want to say scripture is not for my entertainment. Scripture is for my transformation. (laughs) And the the Bible, let me say it like this. The scriptures are never referred to as a massage chair. (laughs) They are referred to as a sword, as a scalpel, and as a knife that circumcises the heart, that cuts off chaff from the heart. So I just want to say, as we're going through this series, allow the sword of the Spirit to cut out anything in your heart that does not belong there. He is a great shepherd. He is a great shepherd of our hearts, and he uses the word to shear our hearts. And so... I want to do a quick review of what I, what I talked about last week. Uh, who was not here last Sunday? I just want to see how many. Okay, just a few of us. All right. Um, so I want to start. I, I did last week an overview of the four Gospels. So before I, I got in to the red letters, I first wanted to do an overview of the books of the Bible that actually contain these red letters, these teachings of Jesus. So you can go ahead and go to that first slide. So just a quick overview. I want to do a review of this. Each book... In the Gospels, there are four of them. They all share different commonalities. You'll see um, the same stories, maybe in, in, in a couple or three, two or three other books, but they are also very distinct on their own. So the book of Matthew, his audience was the Jewish people. So we talked about last week, in order to properly read Scripture, I want to move us from merely just a devotional checklist into a divine treasure hunt into the word of God. And so how we do that is first understand who was the original audience, who was the the author talking to, what was going on at the time, and now make the bridge from the the time of Jesus into our time. How does this apply to us today? This is how it applied to them. How does it apply to us today? So Matthew, his audience was the Jewish people. And his focus when he was writing this was Jesus as the son of David. So his book was emphasizing the kingship of Jesus, that this is the one who sits on the throne. If you notice in Matthew, he goes through this long genealogy from 
from, I forget where it starts, but all the way from Joseph, all the way to Joseph and to Jesus, emphasizing that this man came from the line of David. He is, his purpose on this earth is to sit on the throne of David. That's his reward. He presents Jesus as the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. The word fulfilled is mentioned over 15 times in the book of Matthew. Fulfilled, 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 showing Jesus fulfilling every single Old Testament scripture that was released. All right, the book of Mark. His audience was the Romans, and his focus was not so much on Jesus as king, but it was as Jesus as the servant of God, the miracle worker. This is the book of Mark is the book of miracles. Mark emphasizes Jesus as the perfect workman or miracle worker, and he emphasizes his servant heart. There are more miracles and demonstrations of power in the book of Mark than any other gospel. Like I said last week, the word immediately is found in the book of Mark over 40 times. (laughs) This is emphasizing Jesus' simple obedience, that he saw what the Father did in heaven, and he did it on earth. Simple, immediate obedience. The book of Luke, his audience was the Greeks. And his focus was Jesus as the son of man. And so Luke's emphasis was not so much Jesus as the king, although he is. Wasn't so much Jesus as the servant, although he is. It was the humanity of Jesus. While he is 100% God, he is 100% man. That everything he did on the earth was done 100% man and as 100% God. He emphasizes his sympathy to us in the human race. And lastly, the book of John, this book is to all believers in all generations. And his focus was presenting Jesus as the perfect deity. He was emphasizing the deity of Jesus, that he is 100% perfect, he's 100% holy, he's 100% Lord of all. It's his deity. Yeah. All right, we can go to the next, the next slide. And what, what moves my heart the most is that These four guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they didn't just decide one day, I'm going to write a biography about this guy, Jesus. (laughs) The Holy Spirit wrote these books through Matthew, through Mark, through Luke, through John. These were Holy Spirit-inspired, divinely written through through these men, but by the Holy Spirit. And what's amazing, I, I talked about this last week, is there is a direct correlation between the four living creatures around the throne of Revelation and these four Gospels. This is something that you can't just make up. This is something you can't coordinate. This is only something heaven orchestrates. Heaven coordinates this. So Revelation 4, 6. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. Why do these creatures, why are they covered in eyes? Because I want to suggest in the throne room, When you're beholding the full face of God, two eyes won't do. (laughs) You'll be burnt to a crisp. (laughs) But you need a multitude of eyes to fully take in the multitude of the facets of this king right here. That's how beautiful he is. That's how glorious he is. We, We read this, oh, it's just a throne room. No, this is the holy of holies. This is the throne of God. And these four creatures covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. What do lions represent? They represent kingship. The Lion King movie, hence that. (laughs) 
The first is the lion, which is Matthew. The second was like an ox, which oxen, they emphasize workmanship. They emphasize obedience, submission, emphasizing uh, Mark's, Mark's interpretation of Jesus as the great workman. The third had a face like a man. What does Luke emphasize? The humanity of Jesus is being a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Eagles emphasize his deity that flies high above the muck and mire of everything that's going on. And so these four creatures represent four aspects or four facets of the face of Jesus. Now, I believe there's more. There's more revelation. There's more facets of Jesus. But these represent the fullness of God. And it's here in print for us right here. It is here in print in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, we can go to the next slide. All right, I I define Beatitudes, or we can go beyond this one. Yeah, next one. I define Beatitudes uh, in its most simplistic definition. Beatitude means blessing. But still that word blessing, it's been so watered down in in our normal church culture. It's been relegated to meaning Uh, just financial blessing, which I'm all about. But Jesus is saying, when he's saying you are blessed, this is beyond just financial blessing. This is just something that goes beyond that natural, shallow, surface-level blessing. So a a more in-depth definition of blessing is happy. And this means uh, happy are those who mourn, happy are those when you're poor in spirit, but still happy is very flagrant. It's like up and down. I'm happy. It's kind of like just a vapor. I'm happy. And so the most specific definition of blessing is this, to have a vibrant heart. In other words, what what does this mean to have a vibrant heart? To burn for the Lord Jesus, to be an overflow with his presence. How many of you have been in a season? Maybe maybe it's when you got prophesied over at the presbytery. Your heart was burning. That's called vibrancy. And then you've been in seasons where my heart is cold. I just want to say it's very, it's very possible To be a born-again believer, you're going to heaven, but you can live this entire life with the heart that's cold and apathetic to the Lord. And I want to say that is not Jesus' highest calling for us. And he says, if you pursue these eight virtues, you will have a life on this earth that is filled with vibrancy. You don't have to wait until the next conference to go to to get your heart stirred up. If you pursue these eight beatitudes, pursue meekness, pursue purity... You will be effective in this life. Your heart will be sustainable and will be burning. Yeah. All right. So the best way to read this, you will have a vibrant heart when you're poor in spirit. You will have a vibrant heart when you mourn. You will have a vibrant heart when, you meek, when, when you're meek. Yeah. See, the world's definition of happiness, it's, it's, it's very shallow. But as believers, the joy we cultivate within us Always manifest as the joy around us. Yeah. See, happiness, if, if all my circumstances around me are good and calm, however, my heart is not vibrant, that is not happiness. I'm not happy. Even though my external world is fine, my internal world is dull. My heart's apathetic to the Lord. That is not this happiness that Jesus is talking about. But if my circumstances are chaotic, If everything around me is crashing, if everything around me is just a mess, however, I have cultivated this internal vibrancy of heart, then I am happy. So in other words, I want to say your happiness, your satisfaction is not built on what is happening around you. 
It's built on the vibrancy the Lord is forming within you. There's a reason that Jesus calmed the storm in an instant. It was because the peace he cultivated within him manifested as the peace around him. That, That is a truth for all of us. Whatever kingdom you cultivate within you will always manifest in the kingdom around you. Have you ever seen a person where they're just getting breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough? It's like uh, they just, it seems like, what's going on? And I want to suggest they cultivated gratefulness within them, and it attracted more breakthrough. Grateful people attract breakthrough. (laughs) The, The pastor I grew up in in Colleen, Pastor Chad Rowe. He was, he's an amazing man of faith. And my dad would always say, Pastor Chad, it's almost like he can walk through a pile of manure and come out smelling like roses. (laughs) It's because he cultivated this faith inside of him that manifested as faith around him. It's all about our internal world. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Happiness is an inside job. I heard a story of a, of a wealthy CEO who uh, was going through a really difficult time. His marriage was a wreck. His kids were just all over the place, and he was just in this state of depression. And so he went to uh, this counselor, this therapist, and he went in to, to meet with this person. And the first thing they asked is, what's wrong? Why are you here? And he said, I am not happy. Uh, my marriage is a wreck. My kids don't like me. They're, they're, they're a mess. I'm just I'm depressed. I'm not happy. Therapist then asked, so what's wrong then? <laughs> he said, I just told you, I'm not happy. My marriages are, my kids, he just went on and on. And the therapist answered, well, happiness is an inside job. I can't make you happy. Happiness is an internal responsibility. And the, the CEO, he walked, got up, he pulled $300 bills out of his wallet and laid it on the desk and said, thank you, that's all I need. And he walked out. And the therapist was like, wait, where are you going? Well, the session just started. He's like, you gave me everything I need to know. I know how to handle myself now. I know how to fix what's going on. I need to fix my internal world. And it will manifest in an external happiness. Now, I know there's much more to therapy than that. Please understand. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that uh, that's, that's, that's the rule. I believe that's the exception. But, but what I am saying is that I am responsible. You and me are responsible for our own internal vibrancy. No matter what's happening around us, if I pursue these eight virtues in the Beatitudes, I can have a heart that is happy. I can have a heart that is satisfied and vibrant. All right. I want to go ahead and just jump right in. Last last week I did uh, Poor in Spirit. I went through um, the, the kingdom activities that that fill, that, that grow this attribute. And I talked about six temptations that, that we need to weed out, to, to weed out these, attri- these negative attributes. And so I want you to picture your heart like a garden. And I want you to picture these eight virtues as flowers that God wants to grow into full maturity in your life. Poor in spirit is a flower. To be meek, that's a flower. And the rest of them. And so what Jesus does through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he shows us five activities to embrace or what to water our garden with. And then he gives us six temptations to resist 
or six things that we need to weed out from the garden of our hearts. And so there's a watering process and there's a weeding process to make sure these virtues grow into full maturation. And so I want to go ahead and go to, this is beatitude number two, blessed are those who mourn. I think this is slide number eight. Blessed are those who mourn. I love this one. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, 4. Another way to read that, like we said, you will have a vibrant heart when you cultivate spiritual mourning. And as as Pastor Nicole shared when she talked about the Beatitudes, uh, mourning in this context is not only talking about mourning over loss. There is an aspect of that. However, we are reading spiritual mourning With the context of being poor in spirit. That is the context of spiritual mourning. This is not mourning how the world mourns, but mourning over the gap between where I'm at right now and everything God has made available or everything God has called me to be. So I want to talk about that more. So how many of you received a prophetic word within the last few months? Most of the dual team. (laughs) See, when, when God gives you a prophetic word, What I believe he does is he goes into your future. He sees a moment of what you will become. He takes almost like a snapshot, like a screenshot of your future, and he brings it back through his prophets to your present. And he says, this is how I see you in the future. And this right here develops a spiritual gap. We see where God has called us to go, but we're like, How on earth am I going to get there? How many of you asked that question in the last few months after you got a prophetic word? How do I get from here to there? And God doesn't give us these big prophetic words to inflate our pride. He doesn't give us these prophetic words to make our head big or to build our ego. He does this so that we would deepen our intimacy with him or deepen our dependency with him. If you get a word and you're like, Oh, I got everything I need to make this happen. I would question your humility right there. (laughs) Most of the words I get, I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. Where I'm living right now, it's not at all matching what he's calling me to be. And this is where he's saying, I want you to develop spiritual mourning. And what that looks like is is this. I see where I'm at right now, and I see where he's called me to be. I'm going to take this word, and I'm going to take it into the secret place, and I'm going to groan. I'm going to ache. I'm going to develop tears. I'm going to pray this word out and mourn over this, not in a negative way, but in a positive way. Say, Lord, I need you to touch me right here where I'm at so that I can fulfill everything you've called me to become. This is the spiritual mourning he's calling us to work out. Mourning, breaking off the gap. I remember I shared this a lot when I was seven, I, seven years old. I was really marked by the Lord. There was a prophet that came to my, my church and gave me this amazing word. And one of the things that this prophet spoke over me was he spoke leadership over me. And I was, I've been for a long time the quiet one. I was the quietest kid in my class in elementary school and middle school. Leadership was not something that I was like, yes, this is what I'm going to go after. And, uh, but as I, as I grew up, I grew up in the church and there was one specific season of ministry where I was under this, uh, this, this leader 
who I was just feeling a lot of opposition with. There was just a lot of butting heads, and I just was feeling a lot of opposition and resistance with. And it was in a season where I was trying to figure out my place. I'm like, what, what, what am I doing here? What, what is my role? What is my place? And, yeah. and this leader had a meeting with me and said, Tanner, <laughs> there's not much leadership on your life. You're a great assistant. That's what you'll be here is a great assistant. And I left that, and I'm like, that doesn't sound very encouraging to me. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, Lord, is, is this really the truth? Is, is, that, is that what you have for me? I'm, I'm okay if that's, if that's the calling on my life. And immediately I heard him say, what word did I speak over you wow. when you were a child? <laughs> Will you submit yourself to the word of man over your life or to the word of the Lord over your life? And immediately... I decided to not partner with what was spoken over me. And I didn't fight. I didn't text him back and say, you know what? You're wrong. I went into secret place. And I got this word over my life. It said, Lord, I thank you that you place leadership on my life. Lord, I'm mourning for the fact I'm not living in this right now. But I thank you that you're going to give me everything I need to walk in the fullness of this word. And it was two months later, the Lord laid a place of leadership on my lap. And the thing is, when I got that thing of leadership, it didn't satisfy me because I had already tasted satisfaction in secret. And so sometimes, I just want to say, anytime you get a word, it will be tested. It will attract testing. And you'll be met with the decision, do I submit to the lordship of man or do I submit to the lordship of what the Lord has spoken over my life? All right. In um, seventh grade, I played, believe it or not, I played football. (laughs) Yeah, I did. <laughs> and when, when we were in athletics, uh, we had to take a grade sheet. And uh, every class we went to, we had to have our teacher fill out our grade sheet. They had to uh, write down our current grade. And then there was a comment section to write just any comments, any good things or bad things. And so in one of my English classes this year, that, that year that I was in, I was not doing so hot. And it's crazy because I ended up majoring in English in college. <laughs> but but I, I made like a 20 or a 25 on some test. I just completely bombed it. And so my, my, it didn't really affect my overall grade that much because I, I had a, I, a, every other assignment was good. I was doing really well except this one blip. But my teacher decided to write in the comment section, he got a 20% on his English test. <laughs> and I ended up turning that into my coach, my football coach, and I went home and told my mom, like, Mom, I can't believe she wrote this on to tell, telling my coach. I'm trying to make my way up, you know, the roster. And my mother, who probably shouldn't have done this, but she emailed my teacher. <laughs> Yay for mom. Yay for mom. It could either be really good or really bad. And, uh, and uh, she asked her, is it necessary to write this one grade when his, the rest of his grades are great? My teacher talked to my coach called me, and my coach called me into his office and said, Tanner, I hear that you're kind of upset that your teacher wrote your grade on here. And instead of disciplining me, he said, I am so proud of you that the fact that this grade bothers you. <laughs> See, the fact that you are upset about your grade, the fact that you're embarrassed about your grade shows me who you are as a person. 
that you are a person that can be trusted because if you didn't care about that, then I would have concerns. But the fact that you're, this is grieving you, the fact that you're upset, that shows me who you are. And I just want to say, the, the truth that spiritual mourning is working in your life is the fact that you are grieved by your sin. The fact that your sin bothers you. The fact that you're upset about, and I'm, I'm not saying to get into a place of condemnation or anything like that. But it would be a problem if we were numb to our sin. And I just want to say the reality that mourning is working in you is the fact that you are bothered by your actions. Anytime I'm, anytime I'm counseling youth and they start talking to me, it goes into like, oh, I'm bothered by this lifestyle. I don't like this area of my life. And I don't shame them. I don't condemn them. I say the fact that you're upset about this shows that you have the Holy Spirit convicting your heart. Now. Let's do something about it. What are we going to do about it? Let's, let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Let's do something about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm naturally really hard on myself as a person. Anytime I feel like I've missed the mark, it's easy for me to go into introspection. And, and anytime I do that, it's just not a good day, right? <laughs> but the enemy will always try to turn you inward whenever you experience you know, flaws about yourself. He always tries to turn you inward. The reason he wants to turn you inward is because there's nothing new to discover within yourself except your own junk and your own garbage. And even if you do find something that's wrong with yourself, you don't have the grace to fix it on your own. But when the Holy Spirit puts his finger on an area of your life, he will also supply the grace to fix that area of your life. This isn't introspection. This is this Holy Spirit examination. He's wanting you to look more and more like his son. Like his son. All right. All that to say, allow spiritual mourning to take you upward into dependency, not inward into self-sufficiency. This is spiritual mourning. All right. I want to go to beatitude number three. This is the next slide, slide number nine. I want to really camp on this for the rest of my time, for most of the time. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. So meekness is very similar to being poor in spirit. And what I would say is that being poor in spirit is my awareness of lack before God, but meekness is the awareness of my lack before people. That's the, that's the difference. Being poor in spirit, is I'm aware of my lack before God, but meekness is I'm aware of my lack before people. But I really want to focus on the promise of this virtue. The promise is for they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. This is the one, of, one of the most remarkable promises of the eight virtues. To inherit the earth, what Jesus is talking about when he's saying inherit the earth, means to impact and influence the earth in the age to come. So how many of you know when Jesus comes back, he is going to make a new heaven and a new earth? And according to scripture, he is going to distribute governmental seats of authority to the saints. He's going to distribute offices to the saints. He's going to distribute all these positions of authority Based entirely on how we walked in meekness in this life we're living in now. (laughs) Our pursuit of meekness right now determines our position of authority in the age to come. That's why I said it would be such a disservice to you 
if I only taught on the front door to the kingdom, if I only taught, we need to do both, but if I only taught on salvation and grace, although that is so true, it would be a disservice to you because I don't want to be in heaven and you come to me and say, Tanner, you didn't tell me I could have seats of authority. Why didn't you tell me this? (laughs) See, it's entirely based on meekness. Now, if you look at the world right now, much of the world is not under the rulership of the meek. The world right now, the, over the presidents and those in seats of authority, not everyone, but most of them, are the wicked, are the corrupt, are the cutthroat, are the ones that are like, I'm going to run over you, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Politics is nasty, as you can see. But I want to say a day is coming when the government of heaven, the nations, will not be ruled by the prideful, but will be ruled by those who walked in meekness in this age to come. That day is coming. Anytime you watch the news and see, oh, why is this happening? Get ready. In the age to come, it'll be the meek that will rule. It'll be the meek that will rule this. (laughs) What I learned for myself is if I spend more time scrolling on the news than I do in the scriptures, my discouragement is my own responsibility. Like, I'm it's self-inflicted if I spend more time on the news than I do. In the scriptures. So this is the power of meekness. So anytime someone walks over you, anytime you feel passed up, instead of this inner thing in all of us to want to raise our voice and fight, tell yourself, if I respond in meekness, I'm preparing for a seat in eternity. I'm preparing for a governmental seat in the throne room. That is the power of meekness. And please understand Those who are popular in the earth now will not be the ones that are popular in heaven. (laughs) I want to suggest the ones who the Lord will give out authority to in the age to come will be maybe faces and names we've never even heard of. (laughs) This is the power of meekness. This is the power of meekness. So if I were to tell you any activity to embrace to grow meekness in your heart, I would first tell you fasting. Fasting grows meekness. David said in Psalm 69, 10, I humble myself with fasting. James 4, 6 through 7 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. God opposes the proud. I want to say you do not want the creator of the universe opposing you. (laughs) Now, God is for all of us in a general sense. He's for us. But if I raise up my fist in pride against another child of God, God is obligated to defend one child and oppose me because I partnered with pride. He opposes the pride. All right, second one I would say, how to grow meekness by blessing our enemies. And this, this has a lot to it. This, this is serving our enemies. If there's anyone persecuting you, it is so so upside down in the kingdom to bless those who are persecuting you but maybe buy that person lunch maybe give them a gift card do something that softens your heart towards them and one of the things pastor bill taught us about blessing our enemies is blessing our enemies through the place of prayer and so uh, what what pastor bill taught us and what i tend to do if i'm ever in a season where i'm feeling opposition or resistance is anytime i take communion in the secret place i I pray the body and blood of Jesus over this person. I say, Lord, bless their families. God, give them more than enough. And 
then my heart starts saying, wait, God, don't bless them too much. I don't want to see them too blessed. <laughs> it just exposes areas of our hearts. Like, oh, don't bless them too much, Lord, please. No, but it, it softens our heart towards that person. It, it softens our hearts. Blessing our enemies. Uh, what temptations to resist? What do we weed out of our, the garden of our hearts with meekness? I would say weed out disregarding the marriage covenant. I love that Pastor David and Nicole were talking about marriage and celebrating that. Marriage is not popular now in today's culture. It is not, it's not a popular thing. It, it is abnormal for a young people to uh, get engaged and wait to move in with each other until they're married. That, that is abnormal today in today's culture. But it does not change the scriptures. It does not change the scriptures. And so I want to read Ephesians 5.21. And further... Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For husband, for a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean. Now, historically... <laughs> Men have used this scripture as like a trump card to silence women. And we forget that us as men, we actually carry the heavier mandate of loving our wives as Christ loved the church. And the question is, how did Christ love the church? He loved her by dying for her. What is dying? That is meekness. That is humility. And so I want to say it's not hard for a wife to take her proper place when she has a husband that dies for her daily. This is the beauty of marriage, that I die for you. I lay my life down for you in meekness. The second thing we need to weed out is living with the spirit of retaliation or a what I call a rebellious spirit. Titus 3.10 says, warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. I'm just going to leave that right there. Leave that for you to soak. <laughs> but in my experience, the best, the best way I grow in humility is go up against the grain of this natural thing in all of us that desires self-promotion. It's a thing in all of us that desires self-promotion. I heard a pastor once say that there's nothing more polar opposite than a minister and self-promotion. <laughs> And to take that a step further, there's nothing more polar opposite than a Christian, than a believer in self-promotion. Believers should be the most meek people on the planet. Meekness. All right. I want to, yeah, I think I want to close right here. I want to go to this last one. This is, I'm going to go to slide number 13. I could have keys come up. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. True persecution, as defined by Jesus, is experiencing slander, false accusation, and injustice for standing for the truth of God's word. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all that live godly in Christ will be persecuted. In other words, everyone who takes a stand for purity, who takes a stand for truth, will be magnets for persecution. 
And I just want to say, we, here in the West, we haven't experienced persecution like many other countries have. But I, I, I do believe, of course, as we get closer and closer to the Lord's return, persecution will become more rampant here on American soil. Yeah. I, I saw a research that was done by, uh, by a social scientist, and this person did research about Generation Z, Gen Z, this generation that's coming up. Um, some of them are going to college right now. Some of them are in middle school and high school right now. Um, but the thing that came out of this research is that Gen Z, Generation Z, they are the first post-Christian generation to ever be in our country. Wow. So you might ask, what does that mean? Well, since the conception of America, 1776, all the way up till maybe the 2010s or 2020s, America, the bulk of America, the majority of Americans have identified Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is the very first generation since the conception of our country where the bulk of the population identify as atheists or agnostics. This is massive. This is, this is huge right now. This probably doesn't come as a surprise to many of you if you look at what's happening. If you look at the Ivy League universities, the greatest enemy to their agenda is Americans who believe in Judeo-Christian values. Not just Christian by name, but we actually believe the whole Bible and we don't bend it to our own opinions. If you look at Hollywood, what is the greatest enemy to Hollywood? Those who value family. Those who value husband and wife, family. That's the greatest enemy to Hollywood. Now, all of this, uh, this doesn't discourage me. This doesn't make me sad. This doesn't make me angry because Jesus said these things must happen for his return. And I'm under the conviction that the way the church of Jesus Christ was birthed will be the same way the church of Jesus Christ will come to a close at the end of this age. How was the church birthed? It was birthed with signs and wonders, with massive moves of glory, but with a lot of persecution, with a lot of martyrs. This was what happened, and I believe it's, it's in my opinion that that's how the end of the age will come. Anytime the church experiences great persecution, it always comes with great growth, with great explosion in the spirit. And as for me, I'm, I didn't choose this as a career path. I chose this as a calling. You know, I'm, I'm in this for the long haul. Uh, I plan to be 90 years old preaching the gospel, hopefully on some beach in the Caribbean at that time. <laughs> if you guys ever want to do a Cayman Islands campus, please sign me up for that. <laughs> But I, I'm in this for the long haul, and, and with that, I, I, I'm okay with the thought that there might be a day in ministry where I could be arrested, I could be put in jail for saying that there are two genders given at birth, or that, that marriage is between one man and one woman, or by refusing to marry a same-sex couple. See, we love everyone. We welcome everyone. But there are non-negotiables in Scripture that we cannot bend on in the name of culture in the name of relevancy it's like we can't do it and I've I've heard so much like trying to justify this well well I know it says this but I found a peace with God with my lifestyle what 
What peace have you found? I don't want to find a peace if it's not here in the scriptures because that's counterfeit. Peace, that's counterfeit. It's not going to be sustainable. It is counterfeit. You know, FBI agents, I've heard that uh, those who are trained to discover counterfeit bills, they don't spend their time training to discover the counterfeit. They don't look at the counterfeit. They spend all their time looking at the truth of what does a real dollar bill look like? Because I know so much of what the real thing says. The minute a counterfeit comes on my radar, I know that's a counterfeit. That does not line up with what I've studied. I want to say the same thing is happening today. Don't look at the counterfeit. Preoccupy yourself with this. Preoccupy yourself with this. The moment a counterfeit comes like, "Mm, that's... This is why we need to ingrain our children with the word of God because they will go to college and the counterfeit will be presented to them. I was in college and I, I saw a lot of crazy stuff being thrown at me, but I had an encounter with the scriptures that was more real to me than any professor could throw at me. Get your kids rooted in the scriptures. As Pastor Marcia said, I believe in the last days, it's no longer a line in the sand. Sand is movable. It is a line in the concrete between those who are Christians in name only and those who believe the entire Bible, the entire teachings of Jesus. It's very easy for us to get, uh, to just kind of get complacent and not really realize what's happening to other believers in other parts of the world. And what I like to do is, I like to read stories of the martyrs of the early church. It it just, it does something to you that's like, wow, this thing right here, this Jesus was so real to them that they were willing to die at a stake for him. So I want to read one of my favorite stories of, of a martyr. I read this, I think, three years ago when we talked about the revelation of Jesus. And this is a story of a, His name is Polycarp, the bishop of the church of Smyrna. And this is the account of Polycarp. The scene begins amid a violent persecution of the Smyrnaian church. Polycarp's friends begged him to leave the city. But instead, he remained holed up in a farmhouse not far from the city, doing nothing else all day and night but praying for us all and for our churches all over the world, as it was his usual habit to do. Three days before his arrest, he had a vision of his death and said, I am going to be burnt alive. At the end of the three days, a search party came for him and tortured one of the houseboys to learn Polycarp's whereabouts. When they came to the house to arrest Polycarp, they found him in bed in an attic, refusing to be hustled away. Everyone there was struck by his age and his calmness and surprised that the arrest of such a man could be so urgent. Polycarp ordered that his captors be given food and drink. That is meekness right there. The ones arresting you, give them food and drink. That's only, only Jesus can do that in our hearts. Those who are beating me, those who are taking me to die, I want to make sure that they're fed. I want to make sure that they have enough to drink. That is, that is meekness. That is humility. And in return, all he asked for was one hour alone in prayer. He ended up praying out loud for two hours. 
and all who heard him were struck with awe. And many of them began to regret this expedition against a man so old and holy. Finally, Polycarp was placed on top of a donkey and marched into the city. The police came to him and tried to reason, saying, Come now, what is the harm in just saying that Caesar is Lord, when it will save your life? But their pleas fell on deaf ears, and eventually they threw him out of the carriage as it was moving, breaking his shins in the process. Polycarp was then led into the town arena where a deafening cry for blood was rising among the spectators. There he faced the governor who urged Polycarp saying, take the oath and I will let you go. Renounce your Christ. But Polycarp would not relent. He said this, for 86 years I have served Jesus and he has never done me any wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The governor continued shouting in his face and threatened him with being burnt at the stake. But Polycarp was steadfast and said, the fire you threaten me with cannot go on burning for long. After a while, it will go out. But what you are unaware of are the flames of future judgment and everlasting torment. fire you threaten me with cannot go on burning for very long but what you are unaware of are the flames of future judgment and everlasting torment which are in store for the ungodly the witness there spoke that polycarp's behavior the entire time was overflowing with courage joy and his whole countenance was beaming with grace the cry the crowd cried out for polycarp to be burned alive and even supplied the firewood Finally, the chains that bound Polycarp to the stake were fastened, and the guards tried to nail him in place as well, but Polycarp insisted it was not necessary for them to nail him down to the stake, saying, Let me be, for he who gives me strength to endure the flames will give me strength not to flinch at the stake without you making sure of it with nails. With his final breath, he cast his eyes to heaven and said, For this and for all else, I praise thee, Lord, I bless thee, Lord, I glorify thee. Through our eternal high priest in heaven, thy beloved son, Jesus Christ, by whom and with whom be glory to thee and the Holy Ghost now for all ages to come. Amen. Says the flames went up and Polycarp was of this earth no longer. I don't know about you, that messes me up. I'm not saying this is the word of the Lord, but I believe if we are continuing down this trajectory, we are as a culture, as a society. It is very possible, I don't know if it's in my day or my kid's day or my grandkid's day, but this persecution could come to America. And while that is sobering, this also tells me that a great move of God is coming to America. <laughs> a great move of His Spirit is coming. 2 Corinthians 12, 5. Paul said, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Anytime I'm experiencing any, any sort of resistance 
in my life, any hardships, my first reaction is, ah, oh, I want this pain to leave. I don't know if you've ever stubbed your toe before, but your first, your first cry is, Lord, make this pain leave. <laughs> but I hear the Holy Spirit anytime I'm in that season saying, you asked to be made more like my son. <laughs> this is my process for making you more and more into the image of Jesus. I want to say in, in another way, another way the Lord was saying this to Paul was, I'm trying to form something in you that is greater than the removal of this scenario you're experiencing right now. There is a greater glory than just getting, in, getting convenienced again. There is something beyond this. There is, there is a glory in this pain that is forming my son in you. <laughs> God is saying your victory is not found in the removal of your pain. It's found in you looking like my son. I believe the Lord has a more holy goal for us. That's greater than the removal of resistance. But could it be the end goal of persecution is to look more and more like Jesus when we lean into it rightly? I want to say all that to say lean into the persecution of your heart. Let it produce an oil in you. Let it produce, let it forge something in you that only he can forge in you. This is the gospel. Can we just stand up to our feet? Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.